dots or make a connection here. Past couple of weeks, we've been addressing almost like you could consider it a series within a series. So we're talking about this idea of how we can have joy in all circumstances. And in the middle of this, we get this story where the Apostle Paul is really he's struggling with something, this kind of false imprisonment. So he's in a situation in life that really merits no joy, but he has an incredible amount of it. And one of the, uh, the teaching approaches I have wanted to take in this series is when we look at these substantial ideas, like, for example, this concept of suffering, why do we suffer, which is what we're going to talk about today and then next week also. Um, we've, I've tried to take Paul's experiences in Philippians, and we're trying to connect them back to the root of where these experiences stem from. So how does Paul have joy? We looked at Jesus' promise of joy a few weeks ago. And today we're going to do something very similar. We're, we're looking at um, Paul, who has come to this conclusion that God has meant his circumstances for good. I'm not saying he was the author of them. I'm not even saying that they were right. They were, it was a really bad situation he was in. But he came to this conclusion where he recognized that God could bring purpose to what was going on, uh, that the suffering actually had a purpose. And so we're going to do a very similar thing today by looking at a story of suffering in the Gospel of John. Before we get to that, I want to I frame our discussion this morning. And so this week as I was studying, I read an interesting account of something that happened on the news. Uh, this was written in a commentary by a, a well-respected uh, British pastor and former bishop named M.T. Wright. I'll quote him here later today, and I have quoted him in the past. Pretty respected guy. And he was talking about something that had taken place in his, in his homeland of England. Uh, he had watched a news story about a person who had been fired from a job because of some comments that he had made that were deemed to be incredibly offensive, like the whole culture basically uproared about it. But it was interesting. It was, it was a, a set of comments that were problematic about the afterlife. So you're dealing with kind of religious things, if you will. So you might be thinking like I was thinking when, when I first heard this. So this guy must have been like a prevalent leader in the Anglican church or a bishop or a famous theologian, somebody who's, who maybe went contrary to a, a position that a church leadership had or something along those lines. I thought that's what the nature of the story was going to be, where it was going, but that actually turned out to not be the case. He was actually a, a football coach for a very popular English team. Remember, football in England is, you know, soccer, like we call it, not, not this kind of football. And so this is a, a, a national sport, <clears throat> pretty prevalent. Uh, amongst people, and obviously everybody heard this because he was a popular coach, and he was quoted as saying this. He said, people who suffered from physical birth defects and disabilities, so talking about people in a pretty bad situation in life, um, they had them because they were being punished for sins they had committed in a former life. Uh, Now, rightfully, that is a pretty repulsive statement. Uh, Many people were appalled by it, and we should too. Uh, But the interesting part of this is that the story moved away from the statement themselves uh, the, the statement itself, it moved away as the story developed to the source of the statement. And so over time, the media began reporting this coach's statement as a Christian belief. And it's interesting because if you know anything about the Christian faith, uh, this guy was not a Christian, not a professing one anyways. Uh, he was not Christian, nor was his belief. And it's pretty fair to say that this does not at all reflect the Christian perspective on suffering. In fact, if you do your homework, you'll quickly see that this statement is a textbook definition of what we would know is probably two things today. And one would be like reincarnation, and the other is karma, which are both distinctly uh, Hindu beliefs. They're found in a different faith tradition, yet they were attributed to Christianity. And in that tradition, the idea behind these, this thing, like, you know, you did something bad in a prior life, and now you're suffering for it in this one, this idea of karma basically says, you know, do good things, and good things will eventually come to you. And do bad things, and eventually bad things will come to you. All right, that's the premise of that faith, one of the big ones anyways. Now, here's the ironic part about this whole story is obviously this is a Christian church, so while we will address the claims of other faiths at other times and kind of talk about them, um, my, my desire this morning is to talk about this idea and to point out how many Christians who claim to follow Jesus 
often see suffering and pain in the world in their own lives in the same way. They might not actually be this abrasive about the statement. They would never be so hard as to maybe literally frame it like this guy did. But nonetheless, they shared the same sentiment. And that is really what our teaching today is about. It's what many have come to call the the problem of suffering. And it rightly is a problem because it, it raises some pretty serious questions. And we started talking about this a few weeks ago from the book of Philippians, like I've mentioned, where Paul is unjustly suffering at the hands of his captors. And today we're going to look at Paul's life in light of Jesus, his words, in the Gospel of John. So we're going to take this situation where he has recognized suffering is in front of him. He is unsure about whether or not he's going to live. He's going to make it. He's in a prison cell uh, waiting to find out if he's going to be executed or not. And what helps us to understand his situation is looking at the, the, the author, the guy who gave us the ultimate definition of how to interpret Paul's situation. This is why we're going to jump back to Jesus. And I'd like to look at some of his words in this story in the Gospel of John today because it addresses what is perhaps the biggest question people have about suffering. Today we'll address it in part, and the next week I'm toying around with the idea of looking at some of the greatest myths that we, we have when it comes to suffering. In other words, some of the more common responses that we as people embrace when, when suffering comes. Like, for example, uh, you know, I'm suffering, so I'm going to walk away from God. That's the, the idea of where we're going next week. But before we get into those practical ideas, it's important that we understand the root of what informs those practical ideas. And it all comes out of one question. If God loves us, why, why do we suffer? Oftentimes we have a hard time reconciling these two things. And we begin by examining how Jesus corrects the nature of that question that his disciples ask him. And his response shows us something very important. When asking the question, why do we suffer, this might not appeal to you right now, but work with me for a few minutes on it. The answer is very simple. There is no simple or pat answer to the question, why do people suffer? And we see this in John 9, 1 through 3. I want to reread this for you. Speaking of Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, right? His disciples asked him, Rabbi, here's the question. They're not asking it like this, but this is the question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're basically saying, this guy, why is he like this? What caused this man to be like this? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents, right? Why is he suffering? That's the root of what they're asking here. But Jesus responds, and he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, here's the great example, right? We're looking at Paul. Uh, Naturally, Paul has answered this question in his life. We're talking about this in our series right now so that we can answer this question, why do we suffer? And here, the disciples ask Jesus this particular question, why, why is he suffering? There is no simple or pat answer to the question. And this answer can be a hard pill for some of us to swallow for a very simple reason. Because people often have a hard time with the unknown. Now, in this passage, Jesus' disciples, they they want a simple and straightforward answer to a very complex situation. And this is essentially the battle cry of our culture. We want the most complex situations, whether they are physical or political or emotional, we want the answer to be reduced to like three-second sound bites. And here they want to know why this man was born blind in a word or two. Think about this. The cosmic reality, this guy's life, they just want to know, was it this guy or that guy? Was it him or these other people that did it? And I guess they're expecting Jesus to say something like, his parents messed up, and then they move on and continue on their day. However, that's not what Jesus does. The reason we experience pain and suffering of any sort never has a simple answer like the one the disciples are looking for here. They want one of the most cosmic questions of all time wrapped up in a couple of seconds. And their line of questioning shows us a condition that all of humanity suffers from. And it's not necessarily a bad condition, but I think if we, if we are in total, it, it can become a bad condition. When we are faced with the shadows of the unknown, we usually get uncomfortable and we want them lit up. 
when there is uncertainty in our lives, we typically want answers. I mean, how many of you are comfortable with like gray areas? Uh, maybe being unaware of what the future looks like, or maybe you're on the verge of losing a job or looking for a new one. That gray area, most of us, not everybody, but the vast majority of people, they want that stuff lit up. Because when it is lit up, when we know the future, when we understand the circumstances in our lives, it gives us a level of comfort because it often makes us feel like we have a certain level of control. When there is uncertainty, what I'm trying to say is we want answers. And when we don't get them, we tend to get frustrated. They cause other things like stress and trial and and conflict, right? The unknown oftentimes puts us in a position where we might get a little nervous or antsy in life. Because the majority of us are uncomfortable with the idea of mystery. Now, the discipline of science, which largely drives our culture, and I've said before, we're fans of science here, it's a perfect example of this. The whole point of science is to bring clarity to the things of the world that we do not yet fully understand. That's the premise of it. And while that attitude is a very good thing, and many of us have benefited greatly from it, it's fair to say that in in the major disciplines of humanity, the two biggest, I think, in our culture today being faith and science, we have to get comfortable with the fact that there are going to be times, in fact, it's fair to say there are always going to be some things that we do not have a full and perfect understanding of. And so let me give you this sentence here so that you don't think I'm copping out on trying to address this. Hear both sides of it. In Christianity, suffering is a bit of a complex mystery, not just for Christians, for the whole world, but I think it's more of a problem for us because we try to connect a good God to the reality of this hardship. And while it is a bit of a complex mystery, it's important to point out that it is not a total mystery. And this is where we do cop out if we don't dig deep and try to press into this. So here is a guiding statement that brings some clarity to the problem of suffering. All suffering, all of it, takes place because of sin in general, but not all suffering is because of sin in particular. Those are two very different things. The implication of the disciples' questions shows us that they believe suffering occurred as some form of payback for a person's particular sin. Essentially, here you have you know, the men that are going to birth the Christian faith, and they're adhering to the karma principle we just talked about. Now, this is a, a common but problematic belief for the Christian, and it is one that many of us hold to. Here's why. In, here's why it's a problem. In Scripture, we learn that suffering in general, right, the problem of this first enters into the world because man turns away from God. In Genesis, repeatedly, here's the interesting thing about the way Genesis teaches the way God brought us about. Repeatedly, <coughs> God is speaking about the world that he created before the fall now as something that is without suffering. It is something that is very good. It's kind of like when we, when we talk about the problem of sin, we want to start right with the negative side. But if you look at the story of Scripture, things are very good, they go very bad, and then Jesus, when he comes, begins to set in motion the ultimate way to make things ultimately very good again, right? That's the story of Scripture. It starts out very good. But in Genesis 3, the first human beings rebel against God in ways that they basically assert their own independence. And immediately what happens is there's a, the balance of creation is thrown off. And humanity is not only separated from God, but from themselves. They, they start not knowing themselves properly and the world they live in. Every, every tangible relationship we have, whether it is with God, each other, or even the planet we live on, it starts to suffer. The fracture starts to, to damage everything. And as a result, suffering and death enter the world. So the world is no longer peaceful The world is no longer in harmony with the Creator, and there is a profound shift in the way relationships take place. The one we have with God, the one we have with the world, and the one we have with all humankind. And at the heart of this shift is sin in general. One of the the natural consequences of sin in general, what Adam and Eve do, it begins to shape the, the fate of humanity forever. This sin in general is what causes suffering. It is the birth of it. And obviously a statement like that will raise some questions. There is an answer, but it's an answer that kind of raises five more questions. And you can see this in the nature of the disciples right now. 
It's really evidenced in the negative assumption buried in the question they bring to Jesus. This is why I said last week, you have to be careful. It's okay to ask God questions, but you have to make sure you're not prescribing bad character traits to him. So if you're going to God like what they are, they're saying, like, who did this? And the short story here is they're saying, was it his parents or did God do this to him? I don't think that the disciples were aware that they were negatively accusing God of something, but they were here. And so what happens here is the disciples, like so many other people in their culture at the time, and many in our culture today, they are assuming that, that this guy did something, a, a sin in particular, is causing the suffering. They're saying these things are always connected. And we just said to a certain degree that that can be true. I'm not saying they're never connected. I'm just saying you have to be careful about making that the default way that you understand suffering. And this is why Jesus does not right deny it. I think there is something to be said in his silence here. He doesn't come out and say, no, that could never happen. That's not what he says. What he does is in the affirmative, he clarifies his answer. He says, neither this man or his parents particularly sinned. In other words, he's saying in this situation, you guys have this very wrong. He's saying this guy has not done anything to earn this affliction. And he begins to point out this unhealthy connection that the disciples make between this guy's sin or his parents' sin and, and particular suffering. Now, I want to look at the, 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 what the disciples say here. There are two uh, sources of blame. I want to briefly look at who the disciples blame as the two potential causes for this man's suffering. And you'll probably notice that they're out of order, and I want them to be out of order for a reason. I think it makes more sense to study it this way. So the first thing they say is they ask if this guy's parents caused this suffering. And they they attempt to do what we would call in our modern culture, this is a blame deferral, and there's a problem with this. And I want to talk about why this is a problem for us if we begin to see suffering like this. In Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for people to think that you were suffering because of something somebody else did to you, something they did implicated you. And in this case, they sort of evoke this idea. If you've ever read the Old Testament, there are these words that talk about generational sin. And the short story here is the idea is that your parents could do something so messed up that the punishment would sort of linger in your life because of it. And the truth is, is again, this, this can be true. Like, for example, <clears throat> I pray this is not your story, but if you grew up in an abusive household, physically or verbally, there is the idea of what a generational sin can do there, right? You can, you can be so mistreated by someone who was put on earth to love you that it carries within you consequences for the rest of your life. That's the idea there. That could happen. But taken to an extreme, what starts happening here is there's no longer any reason applied to that. There's, there's an automatic blame deferral that goes on. And people start to say things like, well, because of somebody else, this is happening to me. And I'll give you a very clear example of this in Jewish law at the time. It seems crazy to us, but again, try to rewind your mind 2,000 years and get into this culture. If, if a pregnant mother were to go to a non-Jewish temple and worship another god there, according to the law of that day, her unborn child was also to have considered participating in, in that sin. So the fact that the kid was in the belly there kind of implies that the kid is also guilty of the problem. And while I know that seems a bit crazy, it is one one of the realities of some of the supplemental laws applied to, to the gospel at that time. These were not right laws, but nonetheless, you could see where, in an effort to try to answer these questions, people began prescribing, they began prescribing realities to situations that were not realities. And if you, think of this, if you think of this situation in your own life like this, what happens is when hard times come or when trial and suffering comes, you will likely start deferring blame to others in your life for your suffering. And in doing so... You miss out on seeing the good works of God that Jesus says he wants to show you in your situation. The, the clear answer Jesus gives us is, this guy didn't do it, and his parents didn't do it, 
Right? We know sin in general caused the situation, but sin in particular is not what has caused this, caused this issue. He reframes that thought and he says, this is happening right now. In other words, but God meant it for good. What he says is, God wants to display something pretty amazing through this guy. Stop thinking about this this way and start looking at it this way. Stop saying, like, why is God penalizing this man? And start asking, how is God trying to show grace to the world through his suffering? How is he redeeming this situation? That's what's happening here. However, if you take the disciples' approach, you'll start to say things like, personalizing it now, you know, I'm suffering because of what you did to me. You'll start to say things like, you know, I just can't keep a job because my dad never taught me any responsibility. The reason why I can't get up on time is because he wasn't, you know, hard enough on me teaching me to get up in time. Or uh, if my parents, like, if you loved me more, I would have been a better person. Or if you'd have been a better friend to me, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in right now. While these things can certainly be true, they can have elements of truth to them, it is a real problem when you adopt the unhealthy heart attitude of blaming everything around you in your life for what is going on in your life. What that does is it, it tends to create a very bitterness, a very bitter anger in your heart towards everything and everyone else in your life. I mean, obviously, if you start deferring blame and, and p- applying cause to people... What happens is you're going to get angry at them. You're going to blame them. And I can't see how that leads to a healthy situation. It does not reveal the good works of God. It does not reveal goodness and grace. It leads to hardness and anger. And when you go down this road, you, you impede your life progress. I mean, even Yoda kind of identified this in the Star Wars movies, right? Fear and anger, they lead to, to suffering and death and trial. The same ideas here. These are cosmic themes that are implied into some of the most culturally relevant movies of our times. This, this road stops you from maturing into who Jesus is if you're a believer. And people usually hold to this deferral system because it immediately removes the mystery of the source of the suffering. This goes back to the first thing I said. It lights up the shadow. If you can point to another human, you no longer have the question in the back of your mind about why. The blame has been cast. And if you can blame somebody else for what is happening to you, it satisfies the reason for suffering. It might solve one issue in your heart, but it creates a whole lot of other ones. And perhaps the most obvious problem with this way of thinking, it is surfaced in what happens with the disciples, is you can actually wrongly blame others for your troubles. That's what happened here. If left unchecked, the disciples would have come to the conclusion that either God, which we'll get to in a moment, or this guy's parents did this to him. And both, according to Jesus, are false forms of blame. Even worse, you might pardon yourself for some of the pain that you have brought upon yourself. So what happens is is if somebody actually, uh, if, if maybe you are the root of your issue, like maybe you lost your job, because you just were not responsible. That is, a, that is a personal fault. But it would be very easy to defer to other people, stopping you from owning the lesson there of the importance of punctuality. And even if somebody does actually wrong you, this way of thinking tends to create a bitter anger in you towards that person. So the best case scenario is what you find the blame or place blame on somebody, and then you start hating them. And then you just carry with you, within you a root of bitterness and anger that, that starts to wreck and ravage your life in other ways. And so in short, the, the answer to this question, the suffering question is, here is the disciples want to say, who do we outsource this to? Who do we blame for this? And this is a common attitude in our culture. It's not just a first century issue. It's a, it's a 21st century issue. And when it comes to outsourcing blame, people are often one of the, one of the, uh, the outsources, so outsourcing options. But I would say in the Christian world, and you could even see this in some of the arguments of those that are not Christian, um, God is, is also the one who is maybe even we could say usually the most accused. So God becomes a very convenient scapegoat for the source of suffering. The second suggested reason for this man's suffering is that God caused it in his life because of his personal sin. The, the disciples have this in the back of their mind, so we should talk about it. 
And this is, when it comes to suffering anyways, the quintessential Job complex. If you recall in that Old Testament story, Job's friends, like the disciples here, they're, they're trying to light up the shadow of why Job is suffering so greatly in his life. They're looking at this guy's life fall apart, and they're offering him what we know now is it's really bad counsel. And the root of it, the basis of what they tell him is this. They say, listen, um, you're being punished by God with all this suffering and loss because you must have done something really bad to greatly anger God. And so here, another root issue surfaces. The, the disciples are displaying the same thing. I don't think they got the moral of Job. They see God as being a God who is petty, a God who has kind of in colloquial language today, we would call this like a, a tit-for-tat mentality about the way that he treats us when it comes to the errors we make and the sin. The problem with always seeing your personal sin as the reason for your suffering is that the book of Job begins telling us, it begins by telling us that that Job was actually a pretty godly person. not saying he never sinned, but Job, the the point of this is that he doesn't sin a lot. He He is considered a godly man. And so right now, if you hold to this, if you go to this tit for tat thing, what happens is God actually does become an unjust God and the punishment no longer fits the crime. Here is a guy that essentially is walking with God in an exemplary way, and then all of a sudden God just punishes him for it. In fact, this story ends with Job telling us that while he is suffering greatly, uh, he comes to this conclusion that, that suffering is not out of God's control, but he also does not automatically condemn God for being the source of it. We know in that situation that Satan was actually the source of it. Like the disciples, his friends were really wrong about the cause of his suffering. And to pursue one of these roads unchecked will lead us to some problematic places. And the biggest one is this. Sometimes we blame God for everything that goes wrong in our lives because he's an easy scapegoat. I mean, he just really is. Think about this. If you start believing that suffering happens because God is cruel or oppressive, if you start thinking that um, you know, God is seldom going to defend himself in your living room when you're trying to sort out your life and he's not going to uh, exonerate himself for the accusations you make to him or towards him, he's, he's kind of convenient in the sense that he's not even like another human that is going to you know, vehemently argue with you and defend themselves. This is not the posture God typically takes with us. But when we see God this way, we start to see him as cruel, maybe even oppressive. We start to think that he takes pleasure in these things. Like, like similar to the Greek and the Roman gods, which we'll talk about here in a second, like God sits in heaven and on rainy days when he's bored, he just decides to torture you. That's what he does. It's an eye for an eye. He's like, you know what? Rough day in heaven. I'm going to make your life miserable for a couple of months because it's going to make me happy. We think that every time we mess up, uh, he's kind of anxiously awaiting with a rod to inflict pain in our lives and to hurt us. And this is totally wrong. This is the implication of the disciples. You messed up, so therefore God is punishing you, and we don't want to know what you did to, to receive the punishment. And think about this. If you see God as the source of all your problems and all your suffering, on the inverse, it leads to another negative gospel attitude. If you believe this way, you will also get very mad when you do do good things in your life. This could have been the way, this is kind of the way Job started out, right? When you are doing good things in your life, when you are actually uh, feeling like you're hitting the mark and pleasing God, you're going to likely start drawing another negative equation. You're going to start saying, well, why are you not rewarding me like I see fit? You know, if you punish me every time I make a mistake, why are you not like, you know, making my life super easy when, when I'm functioning perfectly within your will? On both sides of the coin, seeing God like this is deeply wrong because while there is no doubt that God must punish sin, and he ultimately did on the cross, I'm not saying that God doesn't have to deal with this. I'm just trying to challenge a little bit the way that we might think God does deal with this. God had to punish sin, and he ultimately did on the cross, right? That's the point of the Christian faith. However, think about this in light of what the disciples said, what Job's friends said. The overarching truth of the Christian faith is that God went to great lengths to forgive, not punish your sins. He goes to great lengths to show us grace so that we would not sin any longer. How about weather? How about weather? 
Uh, we'll do Q&A afterwards, okay? Sound good? Weather is definitely something we can discuss, but afterwards. Fair? Um, so the foundation of our faith, there are a lot of things we can point to, but this is the origin of our faith. The foundation of our faith is that when we sin, God put Jesus on the cross, not you or me. Think about that. That's what we profess. It's the entrance of the faith. Jesus paid it all, right? God chooses to punish himself on our behalf, not us on our behalf. The foundational Christian truth, of uh, the thing that defines our faith is this. And so that's why we have to be very careful to avoid developing an unhealthy understanding of God's character when it comes to suffering and trial in our lives. Just kind of naturally saying, uh, not to belabor this, but even the, our, our uh, congregants mention of weather. If we say, every time we look at weather and we say, well, God did that, the assumption is that God is a cruel God who throws weather at us to torture the world. The, the nature of how we view circumstances has to change because if you don't, what it becomes is an assault on God's on God's character. And when you think like this, you are likely going to become a person who walks around completely unaware of the daily goodness that God shows you in your life. And the truth is, is that grace comes in, in very, very profound ways, but it also comes in very, they almost seem insignificant, but they're not. When your kid kisses you on the cheek, or when you do have a good day, or when there's care and peace in your home, or when there is joy in your heart, these are things that if we get comfortable with them, we forget that they are graces from God. Yet we will automatically begin to blame God when something goes wrong. We start to flip the paradigm. And I will tell you that seeing God this way, the cosmic creator of all your woe, is distinctly unchristian. And I want to give you a great example of this. In fact, this is a way that Jesus separates himself from some of these paradigms in his culture. Take, for example, if you're a student of history, the way the Greeks and Romans viewed their gods. Literature shows us that they were seen as a bit shifty. This is the nature of the gods. Some are better than others. Uh, some are more trustworthy than others. And very regularly, the gods, lowercase g, they could wake up in bad moods and just decide to hurt you if they felt like it. There was really nothing to stop them from waking up on a rainy day and, and torturing you. And so consequently in those cultures, this view of the deity shapes the way people learn to love the deity. And what I think is that we can make a strong case for the fact that in those cultures, uh, serving gods or pursuing gods was done so that they could earn favor to avoid wrath. And what this led to, this is a cardinal distinction between what we're talking about now in the Christian faith. What this led to was a relationship with the deity based on fear, not love. You lived for Zeus, not necessarily because you loved Zeus, because you just wanted to avoid the lightning bolt. You wanted to avoid the wrath. Two very different ways of, of casting affection on a god. And some Christians unknowingly see their God this way. And they, they might live their lives in light of that. And that is a lie. So, for example, you're probably not thinking about worshiping Zeus today. I hope not anyways. It's ridiculous. But it's a great story. But if, if you're the type of person who, when trials come, you, know, you get mad. And you say, why is God punishing me? And you say things like, well, uh, I guess this happened because I did something wrong. Or, or maybe I, you know, I prayed some about this situation, but not really enough. So that's why I'm suffering. Or uh, maybe if you say things like, you know what, I think this is ridiculous. I've read the Bible, and the Bible clearly tells me to be a person who is generous with my money. I'm sacrificial for people all the time, for my church, for my family, for my friends. I feel like, God, I, I live the right way with my money, yet you've not granted me great financial success. Tit for tat. Or how come, God, this is the other side of the coin, right? How come, God, if I'm super faithful, why is my life so hard right now? That doesn't make any sense. Why is that the case? Well, all of these issues on the positive side are classic examples of bad stuff happening to good people. And I'm telling you, if you see your life like this, what you're doing is you're embracing karma, not Jesus. 
So if you believe this way, it's destined to drive you away from God. Eventually, at some point, you're going to say, what am I generous for? What am I sacrificial for? What am I praying for? Nothing's coming out of this. I'm not getting anything out of this. So therefore, I'm going to walk away from you. One of the things we'll talk about next week, trials come. I'm walking away from God. When you believe this way, it's going to drive you away from God. Because when it comes to our sin or good deeds, okay, and we all have, I'm sure, a healthy dose of both in our lives, there is no tit for tat with God because the reality of this situation is as if there was, we'd all be in grave trouble because we cannot handle the tit or the tat. That's the point of this. We cannot handle the consequence of the sin. And I think sometimes it's even fair to say um, we see scri- situations in Scripture where people's purchase personal righteousness becomes a righteousness that drives them away from God. So in both situations, they're wrong. What we want to find out is the way God is working in our lives. We want to try to understand how grace works in these situations. And the way we see grace in this situation particularly is in Jesus we see, rather than thinking that God chooses to cosmically punish us for our sins every time something bad goes on in our lives, what we see is a God who chooses to punish himself for his, our sins. It wasn't us that he nailed to the cross. It was his son. It was himself. This is what's happening right now in the life of Jesus as we prepare for the Easter season, right? I mean, Easter is upon us. And in the biblical narratives, Jesus is preparing for the cross, that this time is upon him. This is the nature of our faith. So listen, I promise this, listen how N.T. Wright describes how Jesus addresses these faulty ways of believing regarding suffering. It'll be behind me. He says, Jesus firmly resists that this is the way God has ordered the world. That's why Jesus says it's not this or this. God has done this so that goodness can be shown. His grace, his, 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 his nature can be shown. Jesus firmly resists that this is the way God has ordered the world. The world is much stranger than that and darker than that. And the light of God's powerful, loving justice shines more brightly than that. But to understand it all, we have to be prepared to dismantle some of our cherished assumptions and to let God remake them in a different way. We, it's, he's not saying don't ask the question. What he's saying is think about the way you're asking the question. Challenge your assumption. God is a bad God who's a cruel God. Ask if there's a different motive here, a different idea. He says you have to stop thinking of the world. I love this. It's his more eloquent way of describing the tit-for-tat mentality I just shared. We have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put a good coin in, a good act, say, or even an evil one, and they get out a particular result, a reward or a punishment. Of course, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as a result of good actions. Kindness produces gratitude. And bad things often happen through bad actions. And the example he gives here is drunkenness causes car accidents. But where this paradigm gets flipped on his head is in the last sentence that he gives us, the last two. But this isn't inevitable. He says kindness is sometimes scorned, and some drunkards always get away with it. You see, God never desired that we suffer, but because we were created as a people who could make choices, this is a conversation for another day. In some senses, we we revolt against God when we say that he's a sovereign God, but then we revolt against him when we, you know, we, we get, we have a problem for him mixing in our affairs. And then with this question, we have a problem when he's not mixing in our affairs and both begin to show inconsistencies in the way that we approach God. And so all I want to say here as we wrap this section up is God never desired that we suffer. That is not his original plan for us. But because we were created as a people who, who really had some volitional will to make choices, we now have to deal with the fact that, that our sin in general has brought suffering into the world. And there is a good news connected to this. It is a reality that if we start asking the same question with a different assumption, we can start to get to the place where Paul is. We can recognize that God is trying to redeem our situations for good. 
And that is still a hard-edged truth. I'm not saying it makes it any easier, but I'm hoping that it begins to balance the scales in the way that we approach God. Because we can see that even through suffering, God has managed to show us his incredible grace and love. That's essentially what Jesus says. Stop trying to cast blame here and start trying to see the way God wants to work miraculously through this man's life. This leads me to the second truth I want to share with you. It shows us that uh, suffering is, is perhaps one of the greatest examples of the way that God works in our lives, often being very different from how we expect him to work in our lives. We would probably choose a different road, but this is a road that is in front of us, whether it's today or tomorrow. John 9, 5 through 7, Jesus says this, While I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spits on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And this word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Now, in this story, Jesus uses this blind, the blind man's suffering to reveal God's goodness in the world. And I want to unpack the story. This is how we'll wrap up this morning. In this instance, he uses, it's weird, let's just admit it, he uses a mud and spit mixture to physically and later spiritually restore this guy's sight. Right? And so scripture teaches us all things, including suffering, great example in this case, are things that God can use to bring about his grace. And the grace revelation, need to point this out, and this story is a very quick one. Last week, I shared with you a story of it not being a very quick one. I shared with you just the trials that we faced with my son and his diabetes. So I, I'm, what, one of the things I want to point out here is that in this case, it's an instant healing. But like I shared last week, that's not always the case. So I don't think that Jesus is as concerned with talking about the timing of the way that he works here as much, perhaps more important than timing, is the way Jesus shows grace to this man begins to show us, and you can see this in Scripture and certainly in our own lives, there is no single method God uses to bring about his goodness in the world. There might be some repetitive ways that he works, but his work is always done with great variety, and it can very often be highly unpredictable. This is one of the reasons why we struggle with it. God doesn't have a rote formula for the way he works in your lives. He works very differently in all of our lives. It's never limited by what we think he should be doing, what we've even seen, or even to a certain point, what we even understand. God's not bound by these things. So it's important that we, we know that God has a, a, varied seri- a varied set of ways in the, the ways that he works in our lives. And I'll give you a good example. Here we're talking about a miraculous healing. This is not the only place in the Gospels we read of miraculous hearings. In Luke 5, we read of another story where Jesus heals a man with leprosy, an, another physical ailment, serious suffering, right? And in that account... Uh, rather than the mud and the spit, he just says, you know, be clean. That's all that he says. And then the guy is healed. So, you know, imagine with me for a moment that we had, like, I had a panel here, right? I have the, the blind man who now sees on my left and the, uh, the leper who is now healed, healed on my right. And we are interviewing them about God's work in their lives. And imagine if the, if the blind man, right, they start, he starts discussing uh, the healing situation with the, with the ex-leper. And he says, hey, man, I was healed by Jesus, and he changed my life forever. And I really want you to tell me, talk to me about, about how he dealt with your leprosy, right? And the leper says, well, it was wonderful, and I wish I had a really elaborate story, but, but I don't. Jesus just, like, walked up to me, and I told him my problem. And he looked at me, and he said, be clean. And the leprosy was gone. And then the formerly blind man looks at him kind of funny. He cocks his eyebrow and he says, but, but okay, I get that, but like, what about the mud, man? Like, what about the mud? He, when Jesus heals, he dips his hand into the mud and he spits in it and he makes this like miraculous salve and he puts it on the body, the part that's hurt, and then the next thing you know, you're healed. What about that stuff? And the ex-leper is really like twitching his eye right now and he says, listen, uh, I'm, I'm kind of astounded by the nature of this because Jesus does not do stuff like that. He's God and that, that is just straight out disgusting. It's like not even sanitary. I mean, come on, it's the year 33, right? Everybody knows that spit is packed with germs. Why would the God of the universe use spit packed with germs and wipe it on your body and 
and, and, and heal you. Everybody knows that when Jesus works, he just says, you're clean and it's a done deal. And then the man who's healed with blindness says, you know what? This is ridiculous. Um, I, oh, the, the, the leper says, I think this is ridiculous to the man uh, who's blind. And he says, I personally don't even think that you were healed. And then in the first century world, what would have happened is, or at least in our culture today, we would have had another uh, church of denominational spit, uh, split. We would have had the Holy Church of the Spitters of Christ and the Holy Church of the Non-Spitters of Christ. And they would have went on their ways writing books about why they hated the other people and why God was invalid to them in the way that he worked, right? And why does this happen? Why does, why does the jest of this point out something super serious in our lives? Because neither guy it believes the other experience that happened to them was real because it didn't happen the way it happened to them or the way they supposed God was supposed to work. If we get narrow-minded in this and we begin to accuse God of these things, what happens is we stop taking him for who he is and we start taking him for God who works in varied ways, oftentimes for our own good. You know, God has a long history of using methods and people that just straight up don't make sense to us. Most of us that have really found Jesus would look back and say, I'm not sure what Jesus saw in me at that season in my life. It didn't really make any sense. But he saw something in me, and over time he helped me to believe that. And now, because I have his eyes, I see something in me. Right? Logically speaking, there are times when our plans and thoughts seem to make more sense than the way God is working. I said last week, sometimes it seems like, you know, God scuttles his own boat. I mean, I regularly get up and I say, Lord, I think our church would be better for it if we had a permanent place to meet, but there isn't a place to go yet. So what do I do? That? Do I blame that God doesn't love restoration? He hasn't provided a place for us? That's not the way I'm trying to approach this. I'm trying to recognize a, a different way. I'm trying to figure out and sort out how God's goodness can be revealed in the situation we're currently in. God is still working, even when it doesn't feel like it, whether it's a circumstance of life or a personal issue we're dealing with. This is often the case when we suffer, right? We, we want to blame somebody because, let's be honest, who, who wants to suffer? Nobody willingly wants to deal with this or go through this. Yet Scripture teaches us that suffering is one of the main things God uses to mature us and to reveal his goodness to us. And it's amazing how many of us who follow Jesus, whether consistently or at times, we forget this. Maybe some of us have never even known this. When we think of our relationship with Jesus, when we think about growing in him, you know, we tend to think of the, the safe ways the scripture commands that. We tend to think of you know, life in the church and our devotional lives and worship services and community groups and social events and, and lunches. All after church, these are all good things. I, I value them all. But I think it's dangerous to think that these are the only ways that God wants us to grow. They can often become, it often becomes very safe and comfortable, which we talked about last week, which can be a problem. And when God begins to work outside of those ways, whether it's intentional or he's redeeming a situation, what happens is we, we, start to, we stop seeing the way God is working. And so lots of people only see the safe ways that God works in our lives um, as the way that he grows us. We think the only way God develops us is over a hot cup of coffee during our devotional time in the morning. He does that, but he doesn't only do that. And what happens here is, is if you start to see God this way, you will start to see God as like a spiritual ATM. It's that, that slot machine analogy N.T. Wright talks about. You, you constantly and rather safely get comfortable with, with making a deposit. I read my Bible, and then God makes me wiser. Or I pray, and then he solves my situation. And he becomes the spiritual ATM. And all we see him as is a person who, who is put on earth, or put in our lives, to, to create an increase in the quality of our lives. And that, that belief system will fall flat in its face when suffering comes, because suffering is also a way that God can increase your quality of life in him. 
And this is why so many people greatly misunderstand, and maybe even in an extreme form, they have no spiritual construct at all for the way God uses suffering to grow them in Jesus. It's an incredibly dangerous place to be, and it is a place that Paul will get to in Philippians 3, just fast-forwarding our book here. Listen to what Paul prays for when he talks about knowing God more deeply in Philippians 3.10. It'll be behind me. When speaking of knowing Jesus, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And what Paul is saying here is that when I, when I suffer in a very real way, I identify with my Savior in a way that, that only suffering can bring about in my life. And I become like him in his death, which is ultimately what leads to my abundant life on this earth. And so suffering has an incredibly powerful, I'm not saying it is a palatable purpose, but it is a powerful purpose. So ask this as we wrap up. Have, have you ever thought about this verse in light of your faith? Have you ever thought about it in lieu of your current circumstances or the ones you have gone through or the ones that are in front of you that you're not even aware of yet? That personal suffering, or even when you look at the gospel, not even in suffering can we be selfish. Right? The point of the gospel says that, that Jesus' suffering was a selfless act that benefited others. If we are personally suffering or even suffering for the sake of others— that that is not necessarily a footnote in Christianity. Rather, it is actually at the heart of what Christianity is, that God can use the suffering and pain in this world for his glory and for our good. And it takes a real spiritual maturity to see suffering this way. I I really am saying, like, this is like advanced faith. It's when you really start to press into Jesus in such a way that you actually become okay with recognizing in a very humble way that there are times when we have clarity and times when we don't have, we don't. And that God's ways truly, in many ways, are higher than ours. That his methods often have purposes beyond our comprehension to fully understand at the moment, and maybe even ever. There might be some situations we never get the clear answer we want for in life. Yet in this, we have to trust that that God is good and right in these circumstances. Not that the circumstance is good and right, but that God's goodness is present in them, even when they don't make sense to us. And the greatest example we have of this, priming the pump for you know, Easter, Palm Sunday next week, Easter the following, is just look at Jesus on the cross. I mean, in hindsight, if you were to ask the disciples honestly, if they could have pressed the stop button and stopped Jesus from being removed after that upper room conversation and put on the cross, I, I cannot believe that any one of them would have said, no, go ahead and kill him. Let's go ahead and knock this out. They did not even get the, what was happening at that point. They did not see the cosmic grace that was about to happen on the cross. If left to their vices, they would have stopped that. Yet we know now, right, we have hindsight now, they didn't then, that God intended to relieve the suffering of all humanity, in part today and in full when Christ comes back through his own suffering. It is not a cup of coffee and a devotional that brings hope to the world. It is his son on the cross suffering for the redemption of humanity that brings hope to the world. It is through God's personal suffering that God's ultimate grace is revealed. So this is not just something we do or deal with. This is something that God, he has both loved us first and he has suffered first before we even did. This was his, his burden to bear for us. And so as we wrap up and move towards communion, very fitting today, I want to say this. It's interesting. We didn't really talk about this, but at the end of chapter 9, the, the last verse that we read in John, it shows that, that people are asking this question, where's this guy? They're like, where, where is Jesus? He just did something powerful in your life. Where is he? And there's some deep-seated implications to that question. Physically and spiritually, people, as, as Jesus grows in his favor with people in the Gospels, they, they, they're asking, like, where he is, not just physically, but they're starting to ask, who is this guy to me? 
Because they're trying to figure out, think about this, they're trying to figure out how to light up the shadow and the trials of life. That's what's going on here. And you can see this unpack in the Gospel of John. And I'm sure just like today, every single one of us in this room right now, we're asking this question to a certain degree with varied motives. We're asking, like, where is Jesus? Maybe you don't believe in him and you're wondering what the reality of this guy is. Or maybe you do believe in him, but you're challenged by your life circumstances. We all have different motives for why we bring our questions to Jesus. In our story, uh, some were looking to make Jesus, I'm sure, a scapegoat for the world's problems. We know that while we see this as a miraculous hearing, the Pharisees immediately tried to arrest him. They, they say, here's the scapegoat. This is the problem, Jesus. Let's, let's kill him, right? So the grace of God is misinterpreted, and there are those who want to do what I said earlier. He's the cosmic cause for all of our problems. Some probably heard of his goodness and they wanted to bring their own suffering to him because they had maybe even slightly selfish. They just said, Jesus took this guy's pain away and I'm going to follow him if he'll take mine away. And I'm sure there were people who were so moved by Christ's compassion. They heard about the fact that Jesus was continually serving others that they really did just want to meet him. They, they were intrigued by who he was and they said, I'd like to get around this guy. I just want to touch his coattail and hear who he is. And so as you prepare your hearts for reflection time, communion, Good, uh, good, uh, good Friday, right? Pump Sunday, Easter Sunday over these next two weeks. Ask God to show you where Jesus is in your own life because I think this season we celebrate now will be more meaningful if you do. And I want to give you one clear response, one answer. If you're asking the question to Jesus, where are you? He is not hiding from you. He is not punishing you. Know that if you want to know Jesus' goodness, if you want to experience his grace, his grace, taking it on his terms. Remember, his grace might feel different than the way you think he should be working. You need to know that Jesus is not trying to hide this from you. He wants to show it to you. So when it comes to your current life circumstances, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you? And what is it that you are going to do about it as we have this time of reflection and meditation this morning? Pray with me.